Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. While Easter is a cultural event, it is also a place where people are open to an invitation to church. Chances are that most people in your spheres, at least some of them, are thinking about attending a church, whether they do regularly or not. It's one of the simplest times of year to just say, hey, why don't you and the Easter Bunny, come join me at church, and uh, people are open and receptive to that, especially because we've got the Easter egg hunt going on, family-friendly, so people that your kids hang out with, it's a wonderful opportunity to invite them. We actually have invite cards that are pre-printed for you. They look like uh, one of these pictures up here. It's got our service times on it. It's got information about the church, and uh, just a real simple, casual way to say, hey, if you're going to think about Easter, no pressure, but why don't you come and join me? We'll be at the 9 o'clock the 11 o'clock service, Easter egg hunt in the middle, and uh, we just want to equip you to be a spiritual voice into the lives of the relationships uh, around you. While we're talking about Easter, uh, we just have two short weeks until Easter is here, so we've got some eggs to stuff. We'll talk about that coming up. We're still looking for literally as much non-chocolate Easter candy as we can muster. Uh, I have like five tubs. They're literally stacked higher than me in my office of Easter eggs, and uh, so so the more candy that we get, uh, the more eggs that we get to hide, and uh, that's just a great fun for everybody. If uh, We're also looking for some volunteers on Easter Sunday, 9.15 a.m., uh, to help us hide some eggs. We need about 10 people there uh, to assist the Easter Bunny in making sure that we have plenty of eggs hid and uh, that all the kids leave with plenty of sugar. So if you want to help in that endeavor, uh, you can check the box in your bulletin. Uh, we also are going to be making some fresh bagels that morning, which is going to be pretty exciting. Exciting. Uh, Reed Porter is a, a bagel connoisseur, and uh, to make the amount of bagels that we need, we just need some hands there. It says morning on your bulletin. It's actually going to be the evening before because I don't understand how to cook. So that's why that's there. Uh, we're looking for about six people, some hands to help make some bagels. If uh, you'd like to be a part of that, maybe you're open to that, check that box. Reed will be in contact. We also have uh, a Good Friday opportunity that's on the back of your bulletin, and uh, Good Friday, we'll just be doing a come-and-go service here as we kind of look at the more reflective moments of Easter. We want this not only to be a family-friendly and cultural opportunity on Easter morning, but we also want to take a look uh, at some of the more somber pieces of what goes into uh, the resurrection uh, and Easter Sunday. All of that to say, there's a lot going on in the next couple weeks, least of which is not this morning. We are starting a new series that will culminate on Easter, and we're calling it King, and if you're observant, you may notice that the I is the number one there. It's because we're talking about this in the lens or through the framework of the reality that there is one true king. And ultimately, spoiler alert, that's Jesus. But we're going to take a couple weeks to build up to that, to look behind the scenes about who God is, how Jesus comes onto the scene, and what his death and resurrection means, not just for us as the people in this room, not just for people of faith, but for all of creation and for the 
the entire world. So I hope that you'll join us for that. But as we start off, it'd be good just to kind of start off at the very, very beginning by talking about what a king is. Now, maybe not something that we're intimately familiar with. So let's take a a mental time travel, if you'll join me. Let's go back in time to a place where perhaps kings reigned more frequently, back to a time when all of your belongings, all of your possessions were at the whim of the strongest person around. And if that was you, that meant that you could protect your family, protect your livestock. If that wasn't you, if as you grew older and you lost the opportunity to defend yourself, it puts you at the mercy of thieves and of bandits, of anyone else around you. And so in this time, back when people ruled the world this way, when we were perhaps more tribal than we are today, at least in our daily comings and goings, there's this idea of a king that rises up, one who does something for his people. So let's just ask the question, let's see if your coffee's working yet this morning. What do you think makes a good king? Participation, let's go. What do you think? Benevolence, Benevolence, okay. You'd hope that this king is good, right? Like you don't want an an evil king. We don't call a king. We call him a, a, a dictator or a villain or something else, right? But you hope that there's a goodness involved in this king. What else? Sorry, say that again? Intelligence. You'd hope he's a wise leader, right? That he knows what he's talking about. If we're actually taking our mental field trip, you hope that he's wise in battle plans. You hope that he can defend you successfully. As we go throughout history, that might resolve into leadership in leading a kingdom and managing people well. But yeah, you hope there's some wisdom, some leadership behind what he's doing. What else? So what's that? <laughs> Say that again. Free coffee for all, uh, maybe, sure. How about strength, right? You'd hope that the king is able to protect you, right? That he's able to do what he says that he could do, that he's able to actually protect you, that he's actually able to live up to his name. You wanted a king who was strong, who could protect you, who was feared by other people around you, who was wise, right, in battle. And if he were good, then that would be a bonus. If he had your benefit, that would probably be okay. But let's be real. If at the time all of your stuff is getting taken, if at the time you're in danger of getting overrun, goodness might be on the fence. You'd swear fealty. You'd bend the knee. Game of Thrones people, I see you one week. You would have the opportunity, though, to follow whichever king came along and could offer you the strongest protection. And so as we turn our attention to the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, I just want to draw a couple of thoughts for us as we build our case forward towards Easter. As you read the Bible, as you look into its foundations, there's no way around the fact that in the beginning, God was king. In the beginning, as the world is created, the lens through which the Bible is written, they see God not just as a spiritual force, not just as a being that's out there somewhere, but they see God as their reigning and ruling king of the world. A couple of scriptures that just highlight that. Psalm 95.3 says it this way, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Not only is he God in a spiritual sense, he is king in a physical Proximity. First Chronicles 16.31, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord 
reigns. Reigns is a kingly word, right? This is as we read through the Old Testament, we see so many pictures and words and verbiage that would underline an earthly kingdom, thrones and judgments and righteousness and fear and reigns. These are all Old Testament symbols, not only of God, but of what it meant to be a king in those days. Because the writers of the Old Testament, the early kingdom of Israel and before, saw God as a king of the the world, king of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of the realm in which they lived. And the benefit for them is that this king had then appointed them to be his heirs. They were his followers. They were his subjects. And they took great pride because their God not only was wise, not only was he strong, but he was also good. And so in the same vein as an earthly king, if we trace the story in the Old Testament, we see these themes of kingship coming through. He liberates them from the oppressors, right? This is the story in Exodus. They're held in captivity for 400 years. The Lord comes along through Moses, frees them from their chains, invites them into a better, safer space, right? Like a good king, like a good shepherd, he leads them into a promised land, into a good land flowing with milk and honey. He provides shelter and a place for them. Once he provides a place, he then also protects it. He fights for them. If you read through the account of Joshua, he is on their side. Again, not as this God somewhere far out there. This is a God who is a king and who is close, who is proximate, who is here and now not out there somewhere. And then like a good king, he appoints leaders. The word in the Old Testament, especially early on, is the word judges, which sounds a little bit different to our ears today. We might think of somebody behind a bench who's issuing rulings, but really the place of a judge was as this intermediary, right? He was a representative of the king. He would pass along information. He would make rulings on his behalf. These were leaders whom God appointed to be able to lead his nation to stay in tune with him. All of that to build us up to our story today. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you want to turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you'd like to follow along in the Worship Center Bibles, you can slip your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you a Bible. You're welcome to keep this Bible, of course. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. We'll be on page 126. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel is kind of the bridge between the Old Testament systems of judges and priests and prophets and kings, as we'll find out in this story today. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's just jump in at verse 1. Of course, all the scripture will also be up on the screen. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons, judges, there's that word, over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, referring to Samuel, but turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice." Now, Samuel, you may have heard of before, he's an Old Testament prophet. He comes in the line of this old line of prophets, people who spoke and led on behalf of God. In chapter 7, he's identified as a judge. And all of that to say that this idea of a prophet, priest, judge was very, very fluid at this date and time. They were simply representatives for people who spoke and led with God's authority, who led the nation forward. They were the conduits, the intermediaries between 
God and man. And we see here that as you do, he appointed his sons to do the same thing, only his sons didn't follow in his ways. They weren't a good judge by those characteristics. What does that mean? Well, specifically said, it means they did not represent their king well. Right? If you serve a king, especially as a leader, then you ought to reflect the nature and positions and dispositions of the king that you serve, lest you misrepresent him to his own people. And so Samuel's son did not walk in his ways or God's ways. They were wicked, which is obviously a problem if you're trying to serve as the mediary between God and his people. This is often the case when kings transition leadership to their sons because the skill set that makes a good king is not the same skill set that their sons are raised in. Kings are raised through battle and through strife, and they learn to lead people to follow them. And when they pass it along to a son, the son is usually entirely because he's been raised in a palace and not on the battlefield. And so the values that lead to being a king are absent in the children that they raise because their circumstances are simply different. Needless to say, again, this poses a problem for Samuel, for the nation of Israel, and it's going to cause the nation of Israel to turn in a new direction. They want to change in leadership. Let's keep reading our story, verse 4. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations." So much there in that last sentence. They say, hey, you're, no, you're the one who followed God. Your sons don't. And so, and so now there's a gap. And while we don't see God raising up another judge, another leader, so instead of doing things this old way, let's go a little bit newer, fresher route. Let's take what everybody else is doing around us. They all have this king who, who sits on a throne and who leads them into battle and, and he reigns and, and he's the one who has power in and of himself. And so Samuel, instead of instead Instead of doing this old thing where we just have an intermediary between God and Mad, what if we had a king who was strong in his own right, who had power in his own right? What if instead of going the prophet-priest-judge route, we went with a king who could judge us? Again, it's heartbreaking because their reasoning is completely superficial. Why do they say it? So that we can be like all the other nations, right? The translation, the thing that gets said here that gets spoken out into being is that they no longer want God to be their king. They want something different. They no longer want God to be the one who leads them forward. They instead say, let's go a new direction. We know this if we keep reading verse 6. But the thing was displeasing. You might have an asterisk in your Bible text there. The word displeasing can also be translated or can also mean evil. But the thing was evil. It was displeasing. It was wrong in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. There's wisdom in this statement. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. This isn't about you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all of the deeds that they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. 
However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I want you to pick up on the language that is spoken for here. Through Samuel, we get the revelation from God that this is not a casual decision, that this is not everything's hunky-dory. God takes this very personally. They've rejected me as their king. They've forsaken me, and they've served other gods. They've abandoned the path that I set out for them, and now they're reaping the fruit of that, which is to say we no longer want God for our king. Give us a human king. Give us a man to reign over us. Give us a person of power through which we can be protected by. God is out there somewhere, but he's no longer proximate. He's no longer close. So give us someone that we can see, that we can touch, that we can feel, that we can perhaps worship in a very physical, real sense, not this God who's out there somewhere. And God's broken by this. He says, they've abandoned me. They've rejected me as their king. But like a good, true, and wise king, he doesn't want to reign by force. And so he says, Samuel, listen to the people. It's not out of fear. It's not out of, uh, it's not out of, it's not out of anger. It's not out of abandonment. It's done out of a sense of loving kindness going, somehow, We've got to bring them back. Somehow we've got to display something different. So the king of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all creation, the God who liberated them from captivity, who fought for them as they laid claim to their promised land, who appointed leaders to guide them, is rejected and he's abandoned and he is cast out. Why? So that we can be like everyone else. So today, I'd simply like to make the point that the shift that we see in this text and in our lives today is that we have replaced God as king with us as king, with man as king, mankind, men, women, it doesn't matter. We've replaced God as king, God as sovereign ruler, not only of the universe, but of our intimate, practical lives, and we've placed ourselves on the throne instead. And it may come to a head here, but it certainly doesn't start here. This has reverberations all the way back to the garden in the words of the serpent, then your eyes will be open and you'll know both good and evil. You won't need God to enlighten you. You won't need God to reign over you. You'll be sovereign and supreme in your own right. You can have knowledge to yourself. You can be your own queen. You can be your own king. And people have been living out that story ever since. After all, a man is called the king of his Right? You got it. He rules from his armchair throne, right? With his remote control of justice, right? Controlling the things. Women, you're the same way, right? You seek sovereignty. You seek a place to rule. After all, if mama ain't happy, ain't you all been there. You've got it, right? So there's all this place where we seek to carve out a space that is our own. Whether it's in our home or at our job, wherever we find ourselves, we seek to reign supreme. It's a drive that's put within us. And before we get too far down this road, I, I want to acknowledge that this isn't all bad. Actually, part of it's good. Part of it is the recognition of that God spark, the spirit of him that he put in us to rule and subdue, to be co-creators along 
with Jesus. The opportunity to be a king and queen is not all bad. It's just when it's disconnected from God as the ultimate source of authority where it begins to get toxic. Connected to God and to his kingdom, we can serve a true and just king who would seek to benefit all of creation, not just himself. But when you and I are promoted to a hierarchy where we are the supreme leader, the reality is quickly, is quickly stumbled upon that we would make poor kings and queens on our own. Because if we're the king or queen, then that means that our kingdoms clash, right? That means that things come into conflict with each other. This may happen under your own roof. It may happen between spouses. It may happen between kingdoms. But we have our tiny little kingdoms. And when somebody steps over the line, somebody steps on our piece of it, all kinds of tensions flare up. Are you with me this morning? All right, let's get a little bit more practical, right? Neighbors encroach on our kingdoms, right? Like fences that are torn down, like dogs that dig under fences, like rabbits that I seem to control, but nobody else can seem to control in my entire neighborhood, right? They're encroaching on my kingdom. Don't they understand how all of this shapes up together? It happens in our homes. It happens at our jobs. When somebody steps into our realm of responsibility, when somebody oversteps a line, it happens on social media. When somebody with their perfect family and their perfect life encroaches on my reality as I'm sitting at home on my couch and feeling judged and less than simply as they live their own individual kingdom out. If we're the king or queen, then that means that we have kingdoms to build, to protect, to provide for. We have a sovereign space that is ours, and we defend it with our lives. We see this day in and day out from drama on the internet to unimaginable tragedies, people fighting for and owning what's theirs, fighting for their rights and not caring what they have to do and who they have to hurt along in the process. Which is why this subtle shift that we see in the text today from God as king to us being kings and queens in our own right is so devastating. It feels natural to one degree because it is a God-given opportunity coming from within us, but separated from God as the divine king, it's toxic. How does this play out in the story from today? Let's fast forward a few hundred years, right? First king of Israel was... Ooh, Bible trivia. Some of you are awake this morning. Saul, right? Saul's the first king, and he looks like a king, right? He's taller than me. He's huge. He's heads and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. How does Saul do as a king? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs down, right? Bad dude. He makes mistakes. He's fearful. He pursues the wrong things. Uh, he disobeys God, like in the text, multiple, multiple times in really big ways. He winds up chasing down God's anointed and the upcoming king of David. He dies alone in battle by falling on his own sword, surrounded by his dead sons. Not super cool, right? Second king, who's next? David, right? Thumbs up or thumbs down for David? up, right? Not a trick question. He's the best king that Israel has. He rules with God's hand. The scripture records him as a man after God's own heart, which is an incredibly humble statement. And don't miss the connection between that. The secret to being a successful king is being a king who serves in the capacity of advancing God's kingdom, not their own. So much so that David is listed as an heir, as a forerunner to the Messiah, the one true king that was prophesied 
prophesied and promised and that will restore God's kingdom to its rightful place, but we're a few weeks ahead of ourselves there. And even though David is a man after God's own heart, even though he's the best example of a king that the Israelites have, he is not perfect. At the time when kings should go off to war, David stays home where he sees Bathsheba. He seduces her. He tries to cover up his mistake in multiple ways. He ends up not being able to do that, so he commits murder as an act of war to cover over his own sinfulness, his own shortcomings. Still the best king of Israel, still a man after God's own heart, but as broken and imperfect as any person ever was. And from there, it's pretty much downhill, right? Solomon, not the best example, wisest guy that ever lived. Kingdom is divided. He can't seem to make that work. He turns away from the ways of following God, and almost every king in succession from there forward is a steady decline away from the intention that God had for his people. Where's God in the midst of this? Why doesn't God save? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he raise up his mighty hand? The answer is simple. They asked him not to. He said, we don't want you to be our king. We're going to go this direction. And so God in his loving mercy says, all right. And you get everything that comes with it. It's not that he didn't want to protect them. It's not that he didn't want the best for them. He was their true king. He just knew that us as king was a recipe for disaster, for heartache, for death and division. And it was true 4,000 years ago in the nation of Israel. And it's true today as we fight and squabble over our kingdoms that we build for the 70 or so years that we're here. So Israel, the people wanted a king. Each of us, I think, if at our most basic level, if we're honest, seeks to be a king or a queen in our own lives, in our department at work, in our households, in our relationships. And the problem with the Israelites is the same problem with us today that we cannot rule ourselves and left to our own devices, we become the worst version of ourselves. Are you with me on that this morning? feel like you need an example or two. Let's talk traffic, right? Nothing surprises me more than catching myself in the mirror in a full fit of road rage because somebody's cutting me off, driving in the wrong lane, being inconsiderate, and I am fuming. Or how about at home when all I want is a little bit of peace and quiet on the one day off that I have, and there is noise, and there is music, and there is dancing, and I just want silence in my kingdom. I just want my castle to remain clean and not have to pick up after you little twerps every single day. Right? How about the suspected slight of somebody breaking into your car and stealing something and the things that go through your head as you demonize this person who has infringed on your kingdom, who has stolen from you? What about spending habits, desiring to live a life of luxury beyond our means, accruing debt to live the lifestyle that we secretly wish that we had, or scrolling through on social media to get a glimpse into somebody else's perfect life as an escape from our our own reality. Because here's the truth. Level with me if you would be so kind. All social contracts aside, look in the mirror and on your best day, I know personally that I am incorrigibly selfish. 
I know that I want what I want and that I would go to unreasonable lengths to get it. And I know that if I were in David's shoes, if I had the might to make right, if I set the rules, if I determined what was right and what was wrong, David's sin doesn't look like the most terrible thing ever. It looks like a simple abuse of power. It looks almost understandable. The phrase is this, absolute power corrupts Absolutely. Absolute power, having the say of what makes right of right and wrong, having the ability to legislate and govern yourselves will infinitely corrupt the person in charge with it. Because when you're the king, when you make the rules, you come face to face with your own humanity. Maybe you haven't had the opportunity to be there yet, but I would suspect if you pulled back into areas of leadership and influence in your lives, whether it's at a job or career or at school, when cutting a corner here or there won't ultimately matter, it won't make that big of a difference, right? Cheating for the right reasons is okay, right? Ask that question to the A-list that bought their kids' way into the universities that's come to light in the past couple weeks, and it's really easy to look on the outside and judge the people who are making those decisions. How could they? I would never. I can't imagine anyone ever doing this and thus. But my hunch is that if we stepped off of our social platform, if we stepped out of the spotlight of our own life, if we were put with a questionable opportunity with zero chance of getting caught, where we had the power to make it okay, to make it right, that we might just be surprised at the person in the mirror, at what they are capable of. I know I can be honest enough to share that this morning, and I'm wondering if you could go there with me to recognize that left to our own vices, ultimately we would be poor stewards of the authority that was trusted to us. Paul says as much in Romans 7, starting at verse 18, says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but, but I can't carry it out. I can't make it all the way there. For I do not want to do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Paul says, I get it. I'm stuck in that rut too. And while God's given us power and authority and leadership in certain areas, sometimes we fall short. Sometimes absolute power corrupts us absolutely. Sometimes we have to recognize that us left to our own would not be the best option available. And until you've come to terms, until you've realized that you would make a poor queen or king on your own, then here's my advice to you. You'll always be fighting the wrong battles. Until you recognize that if you were in charge, if you were the one at the top, if you were the one making the rules, that you would be a poor steward in that, you'll always be fighting the wrong battles, to be chasing the wrong objectives, to win a war that isn't worth winning because fighting for your own kingdom is hollow. There's nothing in it. It's unsatisfying, it's unsavory, and it will not last. It will leave us empty and broken and alone and wondering about what truly matters in life. But if you can bring yourself to face the hard reality that you aren't the point of all of this, that fighting for your own kingdom isn't actually worth it, then you can start to seek out and define things that might actually matter. Let's go back to David's example then. The secret to being a successful queen or king is wrapped up in who we serve. 
The secret to being a successful king or queen is wrapped up in the identity of the person that we serve. When we serve ourselves, it's hollow, it's unsavory, it's unsatisfactory. We would make poor kings and queens of our own lives. But placed in the service of eternity to the true king, we can be transformed into his servants and represent him well. Because here's the reality. While we see God appoint a king in Samuel 8, he never truly abdicates his throne. He's still the one true king. He's just in exile, and somebody else is occupying his lordship in the kingdom of Israel. God is still the ruler, the creator, the sustainer of the realm. But like any good true king, he doesn't want allegiance through force. He wants allegiance through the will of the people, through love, through acceptance, through a willing followership. A king who rules by force will eventually lose to a stronger king. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but fast forward 20, 30, 40 years, some stronger young buck is going to come along and topple all that they've built. God, knowing this, doesn't want to use his force to rule. A true king rules out of love for his people, wanting the best for them, and he extends himself to that end. As people see his genuine care and concern, their allegiance for him is found in something deeper than simply brute strength. But in seeing the best version of themselves alive and well in someone else. Let's make this more culturally relevant for us. I think we could substitute the word king for the word superhero in our current context. And I'm not just saying that because of family fun night. I mean, honestly, when we think about the people who exemplify the best within people, people who have power, who have strength, and we see them on the movie screens, we see them wrestle with their humanity. Are they going to be a good superhero? Are they going to use their powers to benefit everyone around them? Or are they simply going to serve themselves? We see the stories played out on the movie screens, and we can find ourselves in the midst of that story because the hero, the king, the true powers, the one who uses his power not for themselves but for the sake of others, who gives themselves in service to something greater than simply what they could do or build on their own. And the reality is that there is only one true king. And it isn't me and it isn't you, but we spend so much energy chasing around, building our own kingdoms, protecting our turf, making ourselves stronger and safer and more secure. But here's the simple question that I'd like to end us with today. If you're using your power, your God-given leadership potential for your own kingdom, for your own good, are you the hero or the villain? If all you seek to do and to build and to create is your own space, your own kingdom, to be king of your castle, to be queen of your space, are you the hero or the villain in the story? God and his love is the one true king, and to be our own kings and queens would be poor. But to enlist ourselves in his service, make no mistake, there are no small queens or kings in eternity. But as you would expect from a good king, he will not force you to follow him lest you follow out of fear and not love. So God the creator steps aside from his throne to let us rule ourselves and it hasn't gone too well. Kings who set out to prove themselves as kings seldom do. 
But what we see in Scripture and what we'll explore over the next two weeks is that God's redemptive plan for restoring his kingdom never leaves the forefront of Scripture. The exiled king's journey back to his throne to reclaim what is his, and then on Easter we'll look at the death and the return of the king, what that means not only for us but for all of creation as well. And so today is simply about setting the foundation, about retelling a story that's been told since the beginning of time that is alive and well in the world today that everyone wants to be a king or a queen or a superhero, but people will only follow a good one, a just one, a strong one, one who rules with loving invitation and not forceful obedience, who invites you to join his family to rule as his daughter or son and to restore his kingdom to its former glory. It's an ancient story. It's your story. It's the story that we all inherit. It's the one that's always been told, that once Upon a time, in the beginning, there was a king who was God, whose people were in trouble, and he would do anything to save them. And the story of creation and of earth and of you and of me is that God is king, not us. And the sooner that we can structure our lives around that, the sooner that we find our role in the story that we were born to be a part of. The story of a God who so loved the world that he would give up anything to redeem and restore and to put it back in its proper order. This is act one of the Easter story, understanding the kingship and lordship of God and how that builds throughout time. I want to invite you back to spend the next couple of weeks with us as we build on this theme looking towards Easter. The band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in one more song. And I'd just like to invite you for a moment to reflect on maybe something you heard today, maybe a pathway that the Lord took you on. Specifically, though, the question that I'd like you to ask within the quietness of your own heart is, so are you the hero or the villain? If your kingdom purposes, if your highest ideal is providing for yourself, is carving out your own space here, fighting for your own kingdom, if you look at that through the lens of kingship and authority and even superheroes, you see that's not the hero, that's the villain. God invites us into a larger piece of that story, and so if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes with me, I just wonder if you'd have that conversation with God. If you'd invite him in as Lord of your life, as Lord of this opportunity to say, God, I I know that I've made a mess of this. I know that I'm not the best candidate for the job, and yet you've given me a certain amount of resources. You've given me a certain amount of power. You've given me a kingdom, God, and how do I align that with your principles? How do I find myself in the service of the King? What does your story and journey look like there? Have you endeavored to lead yourself and just had it blow up in your face? Have you been wanting and striving and struggling to build your own kingdom only to find out that it's hollow and shallow and that it's lacking in what you thought it would deliver? I want to invite you into something that matters, into a story that's larger than yourself to where your power, your God-given opportunities could yield so much more than simply what you see and what you experience. It could be so much more than simply the sum total of what you accumulate in your time here. 
but that it could actually be a resounding bulb throughout eternity, that it could light the way for people to follow and to serve Jesus, to find themselves in an eternal home with an eternal king who is good and who has their best interests in heart. Heavenly Father, God, would you come alongside us? Would you show us the areas where we are perhaps trying to live our own destiny, where we're trying to fight for our own kingdom? God, would you convict us of the areas to which you are calling us not to live selfishly, but to abandon all of that in service of the one true king? God, perhaps for some of us, there's fear in that. In other words, God has let us down despite what we sung this morning. God has challenged us, and we're not sure that we can trust him to protect us, to have our best interests at heart. God, would you meet us in that space and invite us through your grace and your love to trust in you, to take one step in a direction that ultimately would lead us closer into your lordship over our lives. Heavenly Father, this is the one story. It's the big story, and it culminates at Easter. And so, God, I pray for all of us as we build our way in our direction toward Easter that you would be met and found by us, that as we journey this road together, God, that you would be close, that you would be proximate, that you would speak to us in real time, not just from ancient texts that you would give us life and that that life would be to the fullest that we might surrender it back to you for your service. If you agree with that today, if the Lord spoke to you, if you're feeling that tug on your heart to join the one story, I just encourage you to say out loud with me, amen.